This episode was partially funded by our super sexy patrons. Thanks to Paul, who's been a patron since January of this year. Learn more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast. My first crush was probably Robin Hood and Maid Marian from Disney's Robin Hood, like the foxes. And to this day, I still have that on VHS because I was like, yeah, those foxes. Masculine Tops. Power Bottoms. Butch Girls. Femboys. Bears. Otters. Unicorns. There's no shortage of labels that queer people use to describe different sexual identities and preferences. But how do we navigate that horny, thorny path between realizing we're queer and deciding which boxes to check when filling out our dating profiles? Fruit Bowl explores the unique ways we develop our sexual identities by sharing the sometimes messy, always fascinating, real-life sex histories of queer people. Our first introduction to sex. The embarrassing moments we'd like to forget. And the reliable bedroom moves that we've discovered along the way. Basically, all the stuff we wish we'd known when we first came out. Interviews are edited for clarity and brevity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Thanks for listening. Let's begin. Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm your host and the creator of Fruit Bowl, Dave Quantic. I'd just like to take a second to acknowledge that I'm currently producing these episodes during the coronavirus crisis of 2020. And that may have had something to do with the very mellow music featured in the previous episode. My apologies to Jai, but I just wasn't in the mood last week to mix chirpy, happy music with their episode. But no more. We are getting our swagger back here at Football, and I'm thankful that you've chosen to listen to us during these strange times. I've decided to weather this storm by pouring my heart and soul into this project like never before. And let me tell you, it is making the whole self-quarantine thing a lot less lonely. I love working on this project so much because my interviewees constantly remind me of just how fucking strong queer people are and how we've weathered much worse things than coronavirus. And the way we did it was to support each other. So please, if you need support, reach out and ask for it. And if you haven't heard from a friend for a while, check in. Don't go through this alone and know that eventually this will pass. Be strong and stay safe. During this second season, you might have noticed that my interviews have grown a lot longer and more detailed. Anders was the first person I interviewed with this new approach, but after our first meeting, he realized he had even more he wanted to share, and I wanted to make sure that he was heard. So this episode combines two different interviews that describe Anders' life growing up in Texas and the different moments along the way that informed his identity as a pansexual, transmasculine, solo polyamorous kinkster pup. My name is Anders. I'm 33 years old and I graduated from high school in 2004. I grew up in a neighborhood in, that's kind of surrounded by Dallas, Texas, and it was very conservative. It uh, was a Republican stronghold and probably still is. So I am the youngest of three. I have two older sisters who are each about four years apart. I am the baby. I call myself a pansexual, transmasculine, solo, polyamorous, uh, kinkster pup. <laughs> so there's a lot there. 
I was assigned female at birth and I started transitioning a number of years ago and so I have slightly different bits than I used to have. I have a flatter chest than I used to have, which is very exciting. I practice polyamory um, and I'm ethically non-monogamous, but I don't do hierarchy. I'm not the type of person that's going to get married or have kids or move in with my partner. I like having my own space. And um, I like intentionally choosing who's in my life that way. So I'm choosing to be with my partners. My partners are choosing to be with me. In some polyamorous circles, you've got like your nesting partner or like you're married and you have kids together, but you're seeing other people. Uh, for me, it's important. I don't go into what's called the uh, relationship escalator. So that is, you know, we're going to move in together, we're going to get married, we're going to think about having children. That's not something I really want in my life. And um, some people consider it like you are your own primary partner. That makes it easier for some people to understand. It's a good mix for me, and I find I do a lot better if I'm not living with other people. <laughs> At this point, I feel like it's a permanent thing. I want to try to figure out what aging is going to look like, because um, I'm not going to have like kids to take care of me kind of thing but I also don't feel like I should be trying to have kids just to have an elderly insurance policy. So um, yeah, I don't know what that's gonna look like. Lots of people talking about, you know, your future queer commune where we all hire nursing staff to take care of us as we jewel on each other. I don't know, we'll see what happens. A lot of kinky folks will talk about like, you know, tying people up for play when they're little. I was definitely um, doing that kind of thing. <laughs> Toys would be constrained and terrible things would happen to them kind of thing. It would be like make-believe with like dolls and stuff uh, and stuffed animals of like, you know, they were tied up and somebody had broken in and like was forcing them to do sexual things and that kind of thing, which, you know, it's totally normal for small, small children to be fantasizing about, right? When I was little, I discovered what felt good really early on, and so I was just, like, rampantly coming all over the place. Like, everywhere, all the time. I used to try to see how many times I could come before people got out of their car from the front yard to, like, walking up to the door. And, which is ridiculous. Like, I didn't know what it was or what I was doing, but, like, it was just happening all the time, all over the place. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I know for sure it at least started in like preschool, but yeah, I have very clear memories of being over at a friend's house and we were playing with like, like My Little Ponies or something. And I was just kind of like rubbing up on the side of the bed. <laughs> and then once I was done, I was like, okay, I'm bored. Let's go do something else now. I just knew it would go up to a point where it felt really good. And then I would suddenly like, I was just done. I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew that it felt really great. And like, I knew enough that I probably shouldn't do this around like a lot of people. I remember uh, like never really doing it around anybody like in my family or anything like that. But yeah, it was pretty constant. <laughs> There was never any talk. We don't talk about bodies. Like, if I were a kid now and my parents hadn't spoken to me, I would just be looking online. I kind of feel like had they tried to talk to me about it, I would have been mortified. 
I don't know if I would have trusted the information they gave me. You know, there are things that your family tells you when you're growing up that you believe entirely too long. Like, I, I remember someone in my family, I think my parents, telling me if you open the car doors while it's moving, it'll explode. And so I was terrified about that for such a long time. And then, of course, later you realize, no, that's not true. And those are the things you just, you don't mention to anybody, but you just, you believe it until one day you kind of realize, oh, that, that's not true. I remember, like, kids talking about it and, like, standing in line at the cafeteria in elementary school and kids giggling and being like, hee hee, did you say vagina? Or, like, something like that. But other than very basic knowledge like, it, it wasn't really available anywhere. Like, my neighborhood didn't have a public library. All the books I had growing up were, like, books that we had purchased. When I was in health class in the sixth grade, I learned about what a period was, and I'd never heard about it before. And, you know, and they give you the little packet of, like, deodorant and pads, and they're like, congratulations. And I was absolutely shocked. I was like, surely they have fixed us by now. Yeah, like, obviously we've moved past this. This is not an acceptable thing to happen. Like, I remember nonchalantly, like, looking around the room trying to, like, see if this was news to anybody else. And uh, I don't, like, everybody was just bored in class, like, trying not to laugh at diagrams of, like, uteruses. So, I mean, I'd like to think after getting over, like, the shock of, oh, my God, periods are a thing. At that point, I'm like, okay, there are no more surprises. I think I've got this. Whether or not I understood the whole picture is to be suspect, but like I knew where babies come from. I I knew I couldn't get pregnant from like rubbing elbows with somebody. I knew that like, you know, you should use a condom and that kind of thing. Like I I had those basics, but like more specific things like like medically accurate, like STI risks and whatnot. And, uh, you know, all like HPV one simplex virus, like all that stuff. I, I definitely didn't have a sense of that then. I have a lot of sex educator friends and a lot of good resources. So I feel like what I know now is real, but you know, who knows? It's the things that other kids tell the, each other can be so off and wrong. And I don't know. I don't know when that sense of like, oh yes, what I know now is scientifically and medically accurate came from. My first crush was probably Robin Hood and Maid Marian from Disney's Robin Hood, like the foxes. Like both Maid Marian and Robin Hood. <laughs> and to this day, I still have that on VHS because I was like, yeah, those foxes. Like for actual like people, uh, there was a guy in my first grade class that I had a crush on for years, and I thought he was just amazing. I don't know why I fixated on this one guy. We eventually, like, kind of dated in high school, and then I was like, oh, he's kind of a jerk. <laughs> I don't like this guy. <laughs> so my first time, I was 15 or 16. Yeah. I needed a date to homecoming, and this guy had just moved from Australia, and I knew that uh, a friend of mine's neighbor was out of town because we'd had a pool party there earlier that day. And so we schemed to sneak out and meet up there later that night. I'd snuck out and literally run across the neighborhood to this person's house to do this. <laughs> it was very intentional for my part, except for in my point of view, I was like, I need a date to homecoming, therefore I need a boyfriend. So obviously 
And like, I want to have sex now. Let's just do all of this at once. Like three birds with one stone. So the whole thing was we were there and we were flirting. We went skinny dipping and uh, like you do in a stranger's pool. We were trying not to be too loud because, you know, there's large houses that can see into the yard. And um, we were fooling around and we were talking about having sex. And I was like, well, I don't want to have sex with anyone I'm not dating because, you know, that's not okay. And they're like, okay, well, let's date. And I'm like, great, we're dating, let's have sex. And so very traditional, like, penis and vagina sex with the condom and all that fun stuff. And uh, like you do. I had been buying condoms for fun since I'd been in the sixth grade. That was like a thing I did to shock people. Um, I would go to the 7-Eleven down the street, buy condoms and bring them back to school and pass them out to folks because of course I did. <laughs> um, and so I had them and luckily these weren't like from the sixth grade. They, they were fresher than that, not past the expiration date. And yeah, we had sex in this person's pool, but it was super awkward. And so eventually we moved like a raft onto the edge of the pool and like did it there. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the only time I've ever had sex in a pool. You know, you're sitting there and you want leverage in ways that you don't really get in a pool. It sounds very, like, sexy and romantic, and it's really just kind of difficult. <laughs> when I was in high school, I was part of a Rocky Horror Picture Show group, uh, Shadowcast, and there was one girl on the cast that I had the biggest crush on. And she was absolutely amazing. And after one of her performances, we were at IHOP, because that's what you do. And uh, we were there and we found out uh, this one guy on our cast was an ordained minister. And so I was like joking, being like, we should get married. And she's like, okay, but these other two people on the cast, these other two women need to get married to us too. And I'm like, okay. And then, so we had like this mock like wedding thing in the IHOP, I think parking lot. I don't really remember. And then I was jokingly like, ha ha ha, we should have a honeymoon. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we should. And I'm like, really? We reserved a hotel room and we had vanilla Coke and vanilla rum and like had mixed them together. It was awful, but you know, we were in high school. We had tried to go to a hotel that had like the heart-shaped hot tub thing, but that one was full or too expensive or something. And so it was just a regular hotel room and there was a pool. And we went, um, two of us were down in the pool. Well, we were all down in the pool swimming and two of them were like, hold on, stay here. And once they told us we could go inside, we did. And they had put rose petals from the elevator to the door. And then when we walked inside, there were rose petals from the door to the bed. And there were like flowers all over the bed. And then like we were all in like bikinis. And so then it turned into, it was like something out of a porn movie. It was incredible. And it was like our last big hurrah before we all went off to college. And what was funny is I was down in town later, like a year later for like the Christmas holiday or something. And we were all going to the movies and my friend's mom was there and she like pulled me inside and she was like, I know what you did with my daughter. <laughs> and I was just like, uh, uh, okay, thanks. But yeah, it was a good night. When I started like having partners and that kind of thing, it was it was interesting. I would like try to be like, hey, you should do this. And they'd be like, ah, I'm not really comfortable with that. And I'm like, okay. 
for a long time, I felt like I was asking for things that people weren't into. For a while, I had significantly older partners. And, you know, when you're an older teenager, you think like you're super cool for that. Like I was 16, 17, dating people in their mid 20s and 30s. <laughs> and like now in my 30s, I'm like, OK, that's not OK. But at the time, I felt like it was awesome. And they also had a tendency to be into the same kind of things I w was, whereas uh, people my own age weren't. So um, it definitely was more of an outlet for that type of play and exposure. Like my first time getting seriously like flogged or spanked was on a roof of a Dallas goth bar that I'd snuck into underage. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> Later high school, early college, there was a lot of sex with friends and whatnot, which at one point might have been more fun and then later become, became more like obligatory per se. And not necessarily because I wanted to, but because of, like I felt I had to. There was a lot of experimentation that was definitely not great. I think when you're young and you're hearing about like being inexperienced or fumbling, you're mostly worried about being embarrassed or not being good enough, when a lot of times the fumbling is somebody taking advantage of you in a lot of cases. Like when I was younger, I'd come out as bisexual and um, I had told one of my friends in confidence and then they had gone and told a bunch of people and then suddenly all these people were approaching me being like, oh, hey, like we should have a threesome and all this stuff. And I was immediately like, no, no, I'm not bi. I don't know what you're talking about. Just because it was so uncomfortable to suddenly being like propositioned this way. But later I was dating somebody from a different school and I had come out to them. And my boyfriend's family was sponsoring this uh, person from another country in the U.S., and so he was holding a house party, and so all these college students were there, like, getting high and drinking and all that stuff. And um, I ended up going there with um, one of my friends that lived down the street at the time. And we were having this party, and my uh, boyfriend at the time was super into her. And he was like, hey, would you want to, like, invite her and we could go do stuff in the bedroom? And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. And so um, the two of us are in bed with him and having like this really good time. But then people from the party started like running in and like trying to take pictures and all this stuff, which was just, and one, we were all underage. So like, I don't know, all of that stuff was just super gross. And afterwards he ended up breaking up with me and dating her. And so I was like, I'm never doing a threesome again. This is all terrible. This is awful. And then, um, but then like, Years later, I live in Seattle, I'm in this whole kink community, things just kind of happen, and that was a completely different experience. I feel like that's one of the reasons why I like consent and being sure that the other people involved are like actively want whatever's happening. I remember feeling like I was in love when I was younger. Like I was a serial monogamist for a long time. I think from like the seventh grade up until I graduated from college, I hadn't been single for longer than six months. I was just one relationship after another, after another, after another. And surprisingly, when you spend that much time with other people and not working on yourself, like you develop some really bad habits. Like there are people that I've dated that at the time I felt like I really loved them. And then I had a bad relationship habit for a long time where I would just like drive the relationship into the ground hmm. and um, before I could like walk away from it. 
And so by the time I walked away, like bridges had been burned. Like we didn't really want to be around each other because I had just tried so hard to like keep it together that it just like pushed everybody away. And for me, there was a sense of, yes, relationships can be hard, but if you work at it enough, you can keep it going. So there would be, you know, we should have broken up a year ago, but we're still together because I'm still trying to make it happen. I almost only ever dated men, but I always really wanted to date women. It was interesting because I would be dating men and then they would start talking about making things really serious and like getting married and do all that stuff. And then I'd be like, I don't think you're worth not sleeping with women for. <laughs> um, and so then I would become resentful and then... At one point, I was engaged, and after that exploded, I um, took a... It was supposed to be one year off, but it ended up turning into three years off of dating anybody, and I just did some serious self-work and came out of that as a polyamorist <laughs> with, like, a better sense of, like, boundaries and healthy relationship styles. And since then, it's been amazing, and, like, there's been an abundance of love. And, like, while people have left my life, I can still say, like, oh, yeah, I still love them. And I haven't driven them away horribly. After moving to Seattle, and I was kind of taking a hard look at my life. And um, around that same time, I got on hormonal birth control and antidepressants at the same time. And I don't know which one of them like changed things, but it made like orgasm really hard for a while. And that was new. Um, it was one of them. It was both of them. Who knows? And then um, I started met medically transitioning a couple of years after that and um, stopped the hormonal birth control at that point, because obviously I'm not going to be taking all these different kinds of uh, hormones into my system. And then things became a lot easier. So I imagine it was the hormonal birth control, but was still an antidepressants and that still did make things a little difficult. And then things started changing and sensitivity was kind of changing. And so how I interacted with sex like had to change. I used to never tell anybody anything. A lot of things that people feel like they need to do is really intense for me and it does create like some pain, but I also really like pain. And so like, I'll still get enjoyment out of it, just not maybe necessarily what they're going for. Post transition, especially if you've had any kind of lower surgery, something that's really important is having patience. Cause it's super frustrating having to wait for everything to heal up before you can like go to town on people. Um, what I've had is what's called metoidioplasty and I've had a scrotoplasty. Um, so there's a lot of different options for lower surgeries. Metoidioplasty is something where uh, that's called a clitoral release. And so essentially some of the ligaments that hold your junk back um, are released. And so you get a little bit more length and it can be more physically similar to like what's considered a cis penis. And then scrotoplasty is I've had uh, my labia turned into a scrotum. Um, I haven't had urethral lengthening, which means I still have to sit and pee, and I still have the vaginal cavity. So basically I have all the things, which is amazing. Um, so I get to have all the holes in the outward stuff. I can't really penetrate anybody effectively, but like a lot's going on down there, so I can still like get ahead and like participate in some forms of like CBT and like all that fun stuff. So when transitioning medically, there is a lot of pain 
leg uh, because surgery is painful. There's a lot of healing afterwards. And it's very easy to try to start messing with things um, earlier than you probably should. Um, when I had my lower surgery, I had a small clump complication where like it wasn't draining properly. And so I had to go into my surgeon and he essentially had to like squeeze my dick really, really hard to like get this like fluid built up to move. And I was like screaming and crying and asking to see if like, can you do anything like numb it, anything? And he was like, no, I can't. We just have to do this. And I'm somebody that likes CBT, but this was very different and not okay at the time. Like, I'm happy you did it. Like, everything's fine now. But at the time, it was pretty miserable. And that's a very different kind of pain. Um, sometimes as like a masochist, I'm the type of person that like, if I bang something or stub my toe, I can like mentally transform that into being less awful. Um, but a surgery pain is so, I don't know. I feel like it's so deep that it's not something that you can necessarily change. Granted, you know, with care and patience, especially patients, very much patience, like there was healing, it got better, um, but it takes so much longer than you think it's going to. And it's not like healing is not linear. It's a whole process, but um, I wouldn't change any of the stuff that I did. I love my body now. It feels incredible. And I love being able to like be at social situations where nudity is okay. And like be there in my body and like hopefully play with people with this body. Cause it's, it's fantastic. And I like the type of pain I can receive in it now that I couldn't before. I've definitely had like some dominance some people that I've served over time that have shown me different ways to interact with people and how to negotiate different things and kind of like how to start figuring out warning signs with dealing with some more predatory people in the community. And it's kind of interesting because I feel like a lot of people when dealing with like the lower bits and everything try to like approach it like um it is like a cis woman's whole system and it's not and so i feel like people just need to like approach it differently i have to approach it differently it's kind of cool because you get to um learn like new ways of interacting with your body. But at sometimes it's also really frustrating when you're like, I just wanna, I've got 15 minutes, I would like this to work for me now and not have to have it be like a whole ordeal. So if folks are used to dealing with like cis penises and anatomy and all of that, you know there's a difference between dealing with someone that's like circumcised versus uncircumcised, right? I consider myself like super sensitive and a lot of people just wanna like go to town and like as someone who's a masochist, like that still is great but it's a lot of sensation and it uh it feels wonderful but it also like hurts and sometimes it hurts really good but depending on what you're trying to get out of it um like if you're going for orgasm that's not necessarily the best way to go about it if you're trying to hurt me which i like then yeah do that that's awesome like a lot of people love you know hitachi magic wands and those whole things like classic piece of equipment I love watching people use them, but for me, they're like way too strong, even on the light setting, like that's too much. I don't know, everybody's different, so like ask, 
but I, I generally need like a very light touch if you're trying to make me come quickly or repeatedly. <laughs> and then one thing that um, really changed the way that I play with a lot of people was something that Midori said, which is instead of saying, like when negotiating a scene or kink or something with someone, instead of saying, okay, I want you to tie me up, then I want you to flog me, then I want you to do this, um, is saying how you want to feel through it. So instead of saying all of that, you instead say, I really want to feel like humiliated and degraded and hurt. And then when we're done, I would really like to feel like held and taken care of. Like you get completely different styles out of play from that because people will interact with you differently if they know how you want to feel versus, you know, a step-by-step -step of what you want them to do. And it really has like upped the quality of play quite a bit. I don't want anybody to feel pressured about anything or feel obligated to do anything. I want them to be like, fuck, yes, I want to do this to you. Like, yes, let's do this. And like for a long time, I was the kinky one in the relationship and my partner wasn't. And they felt like they had to get into kink to like really like, play with me. And I felt awful. I felt like I was like forcing this person to like hurt me because I wanted it. And that's not a kind of dynamic you want when you're like a subby bottom person. You want them to like want to like hurt and use you kind of thing in like a loving way, of course. But uh, you don't want them to like spank you or flog you or do something with you because they feel obligated to. You want them to do it because they're like, fuck, yeah, this is hot. I want like I want to see like how much suffering you'll give me kind of thing rather than uh, like, is that OK? kind of thing or like did that did that hurt is that are you okay aftercare is really important for both like tops and bottoms or verse everybody in between how it's been explained to me for tops is that they want to feel still okay for doing all those things to you like that they're still lovable and they're not a terrible person and then i feel like for folks that are like bottoming S-types, those type of people, you have a lot of interesting brain chemistry going on when you're getting hurt. There's a lot of adrenaline and like different hormones and things being released in your system that feel amazing at the time, but afterwards you can have like a drop like crazy. And so there shouldn't just be aftercare, in my opinion, like immediately afterwards where you're like cuddling and like reconnecting and all of that, but also like a day or two later, just to make sure that like you're not having some kind of big like mental drop afterwards because it's really easy to like be like we did the thing we cuddled afterwards we're fine I'll see you in a couple weeks kind of thing whereas if you check in a couple days later like hey like what we did was really intense are you still okay do you need to talk about it like are you feeling emotionally okay right now um I feel like that's another important part of aftercare but um I've gotten to try some really cool things over time and uh Going to events where you can like try different things uh, has been really nice. So like the CSPC used to have an event called Try It, You'll Like It, where they'd have like different people doing rope suspensions and electro play and needles and um, cupping and all sorts of different stuff. And you could go in there and like try a couple of things and just kind of get a sense of what felt good to you and what didn't. And that's when I learned that everything feels good. <laughs> <laughs>so many ways to have sex. I always just kind of approach sex like, yeah, this is gonna be interesting. 
It's really fun if you're at a group party to see how other people play and to discover new ways of playing and how many different combinations you can string together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's been more house parties instead of parties at clubs and that kind of thing. Usually, you know, it starts out there's food and social type things and then usually there's some kind of like circle up thing where everybody introduces themselves, talks about what they're looking for that night or what they're interested in. And, um, you know, if you have any things that you definitely don't want to be around or don't want to see, usually there'll be some kind of clarification of what will be allowed at the party ahead of time. And then people will kind of go off and see what happens. And usually there's some private spaces and there's some public spaces and anything can happen. I have seen some like very extreme fisting trains of like person and a person and a person and a person kind of going on and just trying to see how long you can make that. Um, Various floggers and uh, needle play and um, like the house friend right now has uh, a spanking bench and a like St. Andrew's cross and everything. I'm actually very proud of the spanking bench. I designed it so it's very adjustable for all different sizes. Having a house party is a really good way to curate who's there. It does limit meeting a lot of new partners sometimes, but um, they're a lot of fun. And it's a way to make sure everybody's on the same page because, you know, in a club situation, you don't necessarily know everyone's like safe sex practices or consent practices. You know, this gives a space for it to be very explicit. And there's usually some kind of exercise before we begin where you practice saying no to people so like you have a sense of like that's okay to and that you don't feel pressured to say yes to something that you don't actually mean to it's very consent focused which is something i very much support because in a lot of queer spaces that is somewhat new especially in a lot of like traditionally gay male spaces with like cruising and everything that's not necessarily some place where like making sure like is it okay if I touch your shoulder like that's not a conversation that tends to happen in those spaces like I haven't been as involved in like traditionally just queer men's spaces because of like that hasn't been so much of a focus at one point had another transmasculine partner who was telling me about his struggles with navigating queer men's spaces and something that he said really stuck in my mind which was you'll never forget the look of disappointment on someone's face when you don't have like the anatomy that they expected. I definitely had a night at one of the bathhouses where it was like explicit, explicitly like, this is a trans night and it's great. And I went up to, I went there and I ran into a bunch of other trans guys that I knew, but everybody was just kind of standing in a row awkwardly, just kind of looking at their feet, just like, I don't, I don't know what to do. And so that's another thing that's made me kind of reluctant to join those spaces, um, just because like there, there's some worry about not necessarily being desirable in, in that arena, which is unfortunate because like that's a whole aspect of energy that I really want more of in my life, but just have to get up the nerve. I know that when I'm having sex with multiple people at once, I don't know what to do half the time. It, it can be really awkward when it's a, like a three-way and you're sitting there just like watching two people have sex and you're like, should I be engaging? You seem really into what you're doing though, so I don't want to like insert myself there. I'm very consent driven. You know, two folks will be fooling around and I'll be like, well, I kind of want to put my face there, but I don't know if that's okay. And instead of asking, I just kind of end up becoming the lube fairy. So I'm just like, do you need lube? Do you need a trash can? How about a condom wrapper? And so while it's not 
like super embarrassing per se. It's just kind of like, it's like trying to figure out what to do with your hands. Like when you're taking a photo, I'm just like, I don't know what, here, let me help you do what you're doing better. Especially with a lot of sex with like folks that aren't necessarily cisgender. Like there's a lot of things about like, I don't know what you're comfortable touching or what you're comfortable with me doing. And so it's just really about making sure everybody is enjoying themselves and feels good. And if, you know, something changes or whatever, then you just kind of adjust as needed. When I was still playing that whole like cisgender heteronormative thing, there's not a lot of conversations about like, this is what I'm comfortable with. But now things are much more explicit. You know, I like this, I don't like this, do this to me. And like, and it doesn't have to be as transactional as that. It can be very much like, it would be really hot if you touched me in this way. Or like, I would really love to do this to you. Would that feel good? Or something like that. And I feel like the normal way of doing it is like penis and vagina only. The guy has to come and eh, who knows if the girl will come and you know you're just kind of guessing that they like it versus <laughs> like actually asking and talking about it and it doesn't have to just be this one kind of sex. What's interesting I find about polyamory versus monogamy is a lot of times with monogamy that other person has to be like your everything. And there's a lot of obligation that goes with that. Like there's just too much expectation for one person to handle. And you don't really get a sense of being able to do what you need to do for yourself because you're always having to consider this other person. And polyamory, that's probably a thing too, but that's why I really like solo polyamory because there's not necessarily that expectation. It's if you want to be with that person, you choose to be with that person in that moment. And so I feel like you're less likely to take somebody for granted or you're less likely to assume that someone is going to be there for certain things. So it kind of adds a different depth to the relationship because... Like, I, if I'm going through a hard time, I don't necessarily expect my partners to be there for me. But when they choose to be there for me, despite all of that, it kind of adds a whole other dimension and depth to the relationship, I think, because they don't have to be there, but they want to. There have been situations before where something happened and I really wanted support and I reached out and I didn't get it. And, um, and that was something that was really challenging for me at the time. And I still kind of feel that now when somebody chooses to do something else other than support me when I directly ask for it. One of my cats was really sick and I had to take him to the emergency vet. And so I reached out to one of my partners and I explained what was happening, but it was Tuesday night, which was every Tuesday they had a Magic the Gathering night where they gamed. And I was like, can you please come and do this? I know it won't be fun. We'll just be sitting in the waiting room for a while. And they're like, no, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to play this. This is really important to me. And so I went by myself and they ended up meeting up with me in the end uh, when they were done. And, you know, we had lots of conversations about it afterwards. You know, they've since said if they had to do it differently, they would have gone with me. So that's like the pain point. But like they had every right not to go and to have fun. One thing I am concerned about mentioning, like, with being, like, involved in, like, kinky sex or being sexual from a young age is that people think that maybe that's why I'm queer now or kinky now or 
why I transitioned or like because of some sort of something that happened to me. But I have a very, very clear sense like of those identities long before anything like that could be considered like traumatic or something happened. And I don't know, like when I was coming out to my family, one of my sisters asked like, you know, did somebody ever hurt you or do something to you? And like people had, but I wasn't going to tell her that because that would be some kind of justification for why I am the way I am. And I feel like those things are not connected at all in, in my experience. I don't know. I feel like a lot of sex stuff out there is super binary. I, I feel like people need to try to like explore outside of that a little bit. Because there are lots of fun, different like body types and things to try out there. You do things because you want to, and not so much because you feel pressured to. Like even in just the like cisgender gay community, where there's the whole like ooh vaginas, where it's like some men have vaginas and some don't, and um, there's some incredible girl cock out there, and people really need to get in on that because it's the best. <laughs> it's a magical experience. And not to sound like a chaser, that's kind of like creepy sounding, I guess, but I don't know. I have lots of incredible trans feminine people in my life, and I feel like a lot of folks get frustrated with like the dating pool, and I don't really understand why, because like it's a fantastic community <laughs> to be a, not a part of, but like adjacent to. My interviews with Anders were recorded in July and August of 2019. Check out my Fruitful Podcast YouTube channel to see a short video I edited that features highlights from this episode, as well as all the other Season 2 interviews. Visit FruitfulPodcast.com, where you can listen to all our episodes, find social media links, and find out about different ways you can help support our efforts to amplify queer voices and provide a platform for honest and unfiltered conversations about queer sex. Check out our podcast partners, Gayest Episode Ever with Glenn and Drew, Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, Matt Baum's Sewers of Paris, and Dave and Alonzo's Linoleum Knife Podcast Empire. This has been a production of Cubed Media, LLC. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.